For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet an artist whose muse is the Colorado River. Find out what hashtag worthy is saying to anyone who doubts their own value. A personal take from storyteller Anna Montanez about finding an inner strength greater than she ever knew. And author Gabriel Dozal talks about his book, The Border Simulator. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Water issues in the West are complex. The laws that govern our region's rivers and reservoirs are tough to wrap your mind around. But art can provide an entry point and create an emotional connection that helps people understand what's at stake. From Aspen Public Radio, Kaya Williams reports on one painter who is fostering that connection along the Colorado River. Trust your hand, see if you can make some marks. With his eyes squinted, hand out to the horizon, artist Patrick Keycut is showing about a dozen people with sketchbooks how to make those little trees in the distance look just the right size on paper compared to the reservoir before us. We're surrounded by forest greens and rusty rocky reds in a high mountain valley near Aspen. And Keycut, who spends a lot of time deep in river canyons, is savoring the moment under his straw hat. I kind of come alive with more space. It kind of allows me to catch my breath and, and breathe and kind of soar a little bit. Keycut has been painting and drawing the landscapes of the West for decades. He traveled the region with his family as a kid, had a creative aha moment in college, and found inspiration in Thomas Moran, a 19th century artist whose paintings of Yellowstone motivated people to create America's first national park. Art definitely has an important role in engaging a wider public. I always have that in the back of my mind. What is it that's important and what am I doing as an artist to point to things that I feel deserve some attention? Keycut spent most of his career painting lonely highways and arid deserts, treating those wide, empty spaces with the same reverence Moran gave to Yellowstone. Then, a few years ago, he joined a team of researchers and other artists on a trip down the green in Colorado rivers. It's like, oh, this is the original highway. The original highway is the river. So that was a hook for me. It followed the same route that John Wesley Powell took in 1869. But this group's trip, 150 years later, was shaped by major infrastructure like dams and reservoirs, and by increasingly fraught conversations about the difference between water supply and demand in the basin. I've been documenting this drought that's over 20 years for well, for since it started. It's important for me to show the realities of the West. Kika documented the trip in drawings from the field, which he turned into larger-scale paintings later on. But 2019 was a good water year. He returned last year as reservoirs reached record lows, and some of his pieces are now on display at a library in the Roaring Fork Valley, near a major tributary to the Colorado River. His paintings are high up on the walls, so you have to crane your neck to see them, almost like you're in the bottom of a canyon yourself. Dams, reservoirs, and rivers come in shades of warm brown and pale blue. You can almost feel how dry it was just by looking. Christina Medved runs Community Outreach for the Roaring Fork Conservancy, a nonprofit that organized the workshop and worked with the Basalt Regional Library on this show. We still need to be 
capturing these places both for historical reasons, but also because of what they can do with drawing out the emotions and the beauty. MedVed hopes it'll help people connect with water issues that can sometimes be hard to understand. And so does KeyCut. He says making art about the river helped him develop a sense of place and grasp what that place means in a larger context. The persistence of water, I think, is is an amazing thing that allows me to think of this planet on a deeper and kind of broader scale than I have before. So now, after an extra snowy winter and rainy spring brought lots of water to the Colorado River Basin, Kikut is again thinking about how it's changing and using his pencil and brush to depict the high water marks too. I'm Kaya Williams. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River that's produced by Aspen Public Radio, distributed by KUNC, and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The National Alliance on Mental Illness Southern Arizona, or NAMISA, was founded 40 years ago. Their mission is to provide support of all kinds to people living with mental illness and addiction. Over the years, it has seen many important contributions made by participants and developed new strategies that incorporate things like social media that can offer help to people 24-7. Next, Leah Britton talks with a guest who has initiated a simple reminder to help others recognize their own resilience and value. Hashtag Worthy is a self-love movement founded by artist and public speaker Vanna D. Lewis. Lewis is a native Tucsonan who is proud of her Southside roots. The movement is the manifestation of the lessons she learned on her own self-empowerment journey. And the hashtag supports the importance of mental wellness throughout the larger community. My name is Vanna Lewis. I'm a native Tucsonan from the Tana Autumn Nation, Tucson's occupied autumn land, and I'm a public speaker. What is the hashtag worthy movement and what does that mean to you? Hashtag worthy. It is a, it's a lifesaver. It's a quality of life. It's a reset. It's a mind shift that you can own for yourself. It's really you claiming that word and re-owning it for yourself to allow yourself to be empowered by it. August 2nd, I was driving on Golf Links and Cove and a young person was texting and driving and wasn't paying attention and T-boned me. I made a 360 in the intersection, wasn't wearing my seatbelt. Folks thought I was gone because I was just like, you know, hunched over. Came to and crawled out of the car and it was a miracle. I bounced off of another car and just everything was totaled. Uh, at my, I just brought new tires too, you know, in fact, new tires are. And uh, at that moment, I lost everything. It was a domino effect. Everything was going so well for me. I had money, I had a brand new car, it was paid off. I paid cash for it, had a scholarship. I mean, I had worked so hard to get to U of A. I was a professional Pima student and just domino effect boom 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 i ended up in a trap house uh trap house is pretty much you know anything goes revolving door not a healthy place to be i don't even want to get in detail but it was because my childhood friend you know they were like stay here this is what we got to offer and it was the best that i could come up with and to you know feel semi-safe or at least have somewhere to stay and i prayed to the sunset religiously i'm not a religious person but faithfully i would just summon a conversation to the universe and the universe spoke very loud and clear back to me. If you've ever had a moment that you really can't describe, but you've had a moment, that was my moment and I'll never forget it. I felt so in sync with the universe. And in that moment, that's what the universe said. You're worthy, no matter what happens to you in life, your existence is proof and you're enough. It was like this internal, you know, revelation, 
you know, revival happening in me. And I would never tell myself like that. And that's why I mentioned that I'm a survivor because I hated myself. I came from a background from a lot of self-hate between not having a father, you know, mom not emotionally available, having mental health conditions themselves undiagnosed. There's no love in the house, no nurturing, no sense of self-esteem. None of this. You're beautiful, kind, you're smart. None of that. None of that. So I would never tell myself I'm worthy. Worthy is a reset to your own existence that restores quality unto life. And worthy is an acronym. Working on respecting the human you and the R's interchangeable. You tell me, because worthy means deserving. So you tell me what you deserve. And we work on it all day because our humanity needs it. Like we're worthy of attention, not entitlement, but attention with quality to understand like our existence here. So worthy is a, is a movement of self-worth and empowerment. And how have you gone about spreading this message throughout the community? So as an artist, that was a big thing for me. How do I, you know, really show up and share this message wholeheartedly and give it away, if you will? So I was like, okay, as an entrepreneur, you know, I'm going to do this. So I renamed myself as an artist, famous from a hashtag, began to enter into the world's Guinness Book of Records for having the most hashtag tattoos. And then I said, how do I give this away in the best way? So I thought, okay, I'm going to give shirts away for free that say worthy on it to help people own it for themselves and to really empower themselves without a lot of resources and tools because that's what happened with me. I didn't have nothing to, I didn't have no therapy. I didn't have nowhere I could go and talk through my feelings. It just wasn't a good experience for me to learn how to take care of myself. Right. I just didn't even know where to go. I didn't even know what was wrong with me. I just knew I wanted the suffering to stop. So worthy putting it on a t-shirt is something tangible that you can hold and you can visualize and you can have a concept and then you can define for yourself People have said all the time, it's a reset. It's helped me rethink about myself. It's something that has given me empowerment. Like all the things that I've said, but then I thought, yes, the teacher makes a lot more sense because you can put it backwards so you can look at it in the mirror. You can write worthy all over it to like just fashion it up. You can put it real small in the collar just in case you're having a bad day. You can look in there. No matter what the day will bring, you're still worthwhile because for someone that didn't have that sense of self-worth like anything can knock you down your, your your roots ain't strong so I began to my life use worthy as an affirmation something to ground myself me and my friend my roommate we always stay when we leave the house we give each other a hug and then we look at each other and we say stay worthy or you feel down you feel rejected still worthy for people listening that have found themselves in that situation kind of doubting their worth what are some steps that you'd recommend towards finding that self-empowerment it's such a big abstract thought. And so to to really bring it down is like, to me, is like, it may sound silly, but like, did you take your vitamins today? You really need your nutrients. You know what I mean? You need your minerals. You need, you, you need the quality of your life. So really what the big thing is, because the door's open. You just got to walk through it. You just got to know your worth. When you know your worth, it's a lifestyle. It's a movement. It's a way of thinking. Like you're not settling no more. It's not even a second thought. You, you can't deny your human flesh. You know what I mean? So like the, the, the first step is to to know, not stop believing in your worth, to know your worth. You mentioned how you grew up on the South Side. What are some of the unique challenges that come with growing up in such an environment? Self-hate. 
and it's indirect. So that's why it's a creeper and it's a silent killer. Your environment is huge for your mental health and your state of mental health and how you think about yourself. So what does it mean to you to be able to kind of spread those messages of self-empowerment and self-love for people who have come from similar backgrounds? It's the gospel to me. It's the good news. Like, you can't tell me you're not worth something. You just can't. I mean, I'm looking at you. You're enough. And so you don't even have to try to prove yourself anymore. You just got to know that you're worth it. You're worth going out of your way for. You're worth the quality of life. You're worth getting to know yourself. And I have, you know, before I had to be honestly, like I didn't believe my own message for a long time. It was just like in the rafters, you know, just like, oh, yeah, I got this gift. You know, it's so powerful. I don't know what to do with it. You know, just real, real like arrogant. And then I just started to realize like how powerful it really is, not just for me, for me, but for other folks. And then I started to really apply it to myself. And like I'm talking with conviction now when this becomes a global conversation around the world, our minds, our whole humanity mindset will shift. It's a radical sense of self-love and it gets it by the root. Thank you to Vanna D. Lewis for sharing her story. Lewis will be a part of the Tucson Youth and Peace Conference happening at Pima Community College West Campus on Friday, September 22nd from 8.30 to 2 p.m. The focus is on reclaiming empathy. For more information, visit youthandpeace.org. And we have a link on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Leah Britton. There is something very compelling about a single voice telling a true story. Since 2004, Odyssey Storytelling has opened the door to a diverse and growing community of live extemporaneous storytellers who have shared an infinite array of personal experiences live in front of an audience with no safety net, just a microphone and their souls. Joining us next is Ana Montañez, the Odyssey Storytelling Executive Producer since 2018. The first time that I heard someone say, you need to be strong, I was 14 years old. And although I've heard it many times after that, (laughs) and although it was said with the best of intentions, it definitely stuck with me. That particular day, uh, very well-intentioned uncle said it to me. And I don't know if it's because I was going through probably the first like big traumatic experience of my life. My baby brother had passed away and my mom was in a very deep depression, crippling in fact. And, you know, he had this advice for me. He said, you have to be strong. Be strong for your mom. Don't let her see you cry. It kind of stayed with me like an instruction manual. (laughs) I went about life for the next few years or several years, really, not really allowing myself to have super deep relationships or commitments or, God forbid, I have high expectations of anyone, (laughs) you know, because that was really how I kept myself safe. I kept myself sane. But after many years of living that way, living that way made me cry. And of course, That was the thing that I hated the most. So after all these years of trying to figure out how to deal with my emotions and stop avoiding them, I finally got into things like therapy and uh, groups and all kinds of things. And although it was helpful to some extent, I found myself once again (laughs) sitting in a room across from my doctor doing the very thing that I hate, admitting that I 
had a problem that I needed some help with. And she was very aware of all the things that I'd been trying. And uh, I was fidgeting. I was fidgeting very badly. My anxiety was clearly coming through. I was playing with that ugly crinkle paper, the one that they put under, you know, on the exam seats. And I just kept ripping little pieces off of it. (laughs) And she said, so I see your anxiety's back. (laughs) And uh, she asked the question that scared me the most. She said, would you be willing to consider medication? That's like the thing that I avoided the most. Because in my mind, taking medication meant failure. It meant that I hadn't been able to conquer this thing on my own. It meant that I wasn't strong enough to deal with it. And I thought about all the people in my family that had had issues before. And maybe because I'm a first-generation immigrant, I come from Mexico, from a very kind of traditional little town in the state of Michoacan. And, you know, when you first get here as an immigrant, mental health is the last priority on your mind. You're busy surviving, getting, you know, (laughs) a job and learning the language and finding a place to live and all the other things. And so all I kept thinking was, how is this going to be the thing that stops me out of all the things that we've been through? But luckily, I I promised her that I would think about it. (laughs) And then I spent the better part of the afternoon, uh, messaging (laughs) on the sort of a group chat that I have with my sisters and my cousins. And I said, ladies, I need your help. I don't know what to do. Doctor says I should get on meds. And I, I just feel like such a failure. And then little by little, they all started saying, no, why would you feel that way? I've been on meds for years. (laughs) And come to find out all of these incredibly strong, same type of people as me, literally raised by the same people, same Mexican culture, all the things that I felt like were the no-nos were standing in front of me just saying, it's totally normal. Like, get over it. You're fine. It's going to be great. You're going to feel so much better. And as each of them kind of opened up and others realized we were all in the same boat, we all came to the conclusion that this is the generation that's finally breaking that last challenge because we've been able to overcome pretty much everything border aside poverty aside all of those things but mental health that's the biggest climb that was Anna Montañez you can find many more first person stories at odysseystorytelling.com The border. We live near it, so many people's lives are touched by it. From industry to law to families, from the political to the social. But what is it? An arbitrary line drawn in the sand? Or a defining wall between nations and ways of life? Author, El Paso native, and U of A graduate, Gabriel Dozal explores the many functions and applications of the U.S.-Mexico border in his new book, It's a collection of poetry and prose called The Border Simulator. Here now is a reading, followed by an interview with Gabriel Dozal. Customs are waiting for me, 
with their lassos and zip ties. I'm a pile of judgment days crossing the border. I try to organize the hours waiting in line on the bridge, but days travel over days and erase them. I organize my tears instead. I keep some in my coat pocket. Customs finds my years or tears, whichever. And my story tears up the costume agent. Customs agent, ay, perdón, till she's blind in one eye. She tells me she might be able to open simulation. Before customs lets me in, they need to paint my portrait. It's a slow process as they Niagara Falls through their post at the kiosk, revealing their daubs to themselves for customs, like me, are made from hidden daubs of paint. The fence's eyes are located in its weaves, and I can feel its gaze. Yes, the fence looks at me just as I look at the fence. When you look at each other long enough, you start to influence each other's behavior, and the fence has seen me work for years at the border. The fence has seen me building it, the fence. My shadow is over there in El Paso, but I'm right here. Why didn't customs check its ID? What's so special about my shadow? It's not even me. When the, the mass media takes on the issue of the border, particularly when it's a broadcast that's coming from a place that isn't on the border, it's very reductive. And you use an interesting device in the book with your two main characters, Primitivo and Primitiva. We, we don't get to know them that well, but we sure learn a lot about them on the way. So tell me a little bit about why the two characters were created, why they are the way they are. The vagueness of the characters, even though we learn a lot about them, like you say, adds another layer of depth to the narrative. And I wanted to have it be a brother and sister story. It's interesting that you, I now learn that these are actual names. I thought it was more of a, almost like an anthropological label, like this person mm -hmm. is not necessarily fully formed in what we think of as a contemporary or sophisticated person, but they are incredibly sophisticated. I mean, they have motives and needs mm -hmm. that cycle and kind of overlap and also yeah. sometimes contradict. It speaks to what you were just saying about the kind of like the cardboard cutout way that people at the border are portrayed in kind of larger kind of media spaces. And in the book, I try to play with that stereotype, play into it almost, mm -hmm. right? To kind of like show a kind of absurdity, a type of like, even like dark humor. Uh, Primitivo just means firstborn. It's an, it's an old name, you know, it's like an unpopular name now. But if you were the firstborn in your family, that was a common name, like, you know, I don't know, in the 30s or 40s or 50s to be named Primitivo or Primitiva. But of course, I'm playing with that word primitive as well. There's a lot of layers as to what I'm uh, going for with those names, right? Um, it's a callback to my family. Um, it's a callback to see how I see people at the border represented in media. Um, you know, there's a line in the book that says borders all the way down, right? Which is a playoff of the turtles all the way down, right? Like one small turtle on top of a larger, top of a larger, and it keeps going, right? Um, and that complexity is part of the border. That complexity does not... Um, is not as highlighted as I would like it to be. And I'm from there. You know, you have a pressure to write about about these things. What region did you grow up in? Uh, El Paso, um, <coughs> Lower Valley. 
uh, Lower Valley of El Paso. Um, all my family is from there, um, from there or, or Juarez, Mexico. So you, you grow up crossing the border. You grow up living at the intersection of all of these languages. All um, the culture in, in Mexico is different. It's a completely different, you know, and you can walk five minutes and feel that difference. There's like two million people in Juarez, right? And like one million in El Paso. It's just a little man-made river that separates them. The economics, the culture, the people, the jokes, the misheard, the misinterpretations of words, which is a big part of the book too, right? Mm -hmm. you, you mishear a lyric, you mishear a phrase, you mishear something, and you mix it all in English and Spanish. This type of like, I think that's where some of the humor or some of the puns, I mean, I'm a, I'm a poet, right? So I'm a language nerd, <laughs> you know, I'm a big language nerd. Um, so having these puns in both languages, it's just super exciting. Another important character in the book that we also find out a lot about is customs. Uh, what, what do you want our listeners to know about the way you portray the idea, and I have to put it in air quotes, of customs? Again, like same thing with the names Primitivo and Primitiva, right? Um, there's, mo there's many ways you can read it. And depending on where you are, where you're coming from, what your background is, you might just read it as customs agents. And often that is the case in the book. But um, the book is very sneaky. I'm not sneaky. I'm not a sneaky person. The book is very sneaky. It's a very sneaky book um, because I get to play with language in this way. And so customs often is used to reference norms, cultural norms, right? Whatever, whatever that, that might be. Um, it gives me a chance to talk about what it's like to be living in 2023, living in this moment. What about your decision to have English and Spanish in the book? Um, how, what was the translation process like? This is really important um, to the book because the Spanish is facing the English. And there was a debate at first whether we were going to have it like the first half in English and then the second half in Spanish and not like facing poems. But I really wanted to fight for the facing poems because you get this wonderful metaphor down the page, right? Um, this division and you can cross back and forth freely between the two languages. It wasn't my idea though. Um, it was my editor, Nicole Counts. I never imagined my book in English and Spanish. And my editor suggested that. And I thought about it for a few days because like I said, it wasn't something I had imagined. But quickly I'm like, this is a genius idea. This is great. This is absolutely wonderful. Gabriel, can you give us an idea of the kind of conversations that you hope the border simulator stimulates? I hope people start to realize and maybe ask themselves what kind of people cross borders at like a port of entry like El Paso Juarez or the variety and the depth and the humanity of the lives that live that live at the border. Of course, this book is about the Mexico-US border, but it's also about how we've lived our lives on screens for years now and it's reshaped our world i feel like maybe in poetry this isn't breached often right like like the absolute moment right now in 2023 how how we have formative experiences on on phones and then how that doesn't match up sometimes between what we see then in the real world whether that's media or, or what have you right um so yeah maybe a conversation about media that's interesting Gabriel Dozal is the author of The Border Simulator, just released by One World Lit, a division of Penguin Random House. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. 
This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.